Welcome to Feeding the Flock and our expositions through the book of Revelation. We are currently in chapter 3 at verse 7. Hi, I'm Glendale Tony. I'm glad you joined me today for this Bible study. Let's begin reading, why don't we, right away in verse 7 of chapter 3 of the book of Revelation, where it says this. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we are in the middle of chapter 3, which puts us not quite at the end of these seven uh, short uh, memos or seven short uh, letters that Jesus himself is dictating to the Apostle John as John is on the island of Patmos. Now, uh, I'll remind you a little bit about the the main uh, three-part grid that we're working with here, and that grid isn't invented. It comes from Jesus himself in chapter 1 and verse 19, where Jesus tells John to write about the things which you have seen. Well, that's very uh, connected to chapter 1 because that's exactly uh, what it refers to. John saw some things and saw Jesus himself personally and saw some uh, other things around Jesus uh, that he is told to write about. And um, notice that uh, that uh, this is not a heavenly vision necessarily, uh, even though you might consider that in chapter 1 to be... Uh, Uh, perhaps a vision of the other dimension of things, uh, but it was still an earthly dimension. It was right there on the island of Patmos that John saw this and saw Jesus. Uh, it's, It's sort of similar, you might say, to what John himself had experienced when he saw Uh, Moses and Elijah, they were both on earth. They weren't ascended into heaven. They were, uh, they appeared on earth when Jesus was transfigured. And, uh, 
And so uh, in that regard, the uh, the three, uh, James and John and Peter, uh, got to see something no one else saw. But it wasn't necessarily a sight in heaven. It was a sight on earth of the other dimension, that unseen dimension of the eternal things that and the, the eternal uh, uh, existence of, of the people of heaven, you might say, but they were still here on earth. And I believe that's, that's what chapter one is all about, is that particular thing that John did see and those scenes and those characters that uh, John is told to write about. And then chapters two and three are, uh, are combined chapters in many regards because they are these seven letters uh, and that falls under the category of what Jesus said, the things which are. These are the churches that do exist. They did exist at the time John was writing this. They, they would have received these letters in a very practical way uh, through uh, people who would have delivered these letters to them and perhaps even taken the role of being the public reader of these le- uh, these uh, lessons or these letters um, in their congregations. That's the reason I think that uh, the book of Revelation says that uh, there is a blessing upon those who read. And I think uh, it refers to that specific kind of role that people had before there were copies that uh, every person in the congregation had of the Bible. They only had one copy of whatever it was. And uh, and uh, that responsibility of reading that one copy to the entire congregation so that the congregation could learn the words of God, that uh, that was a special role. And I think that's exactly uh, what was going on there. These things existed, and Jesus addresses the various things in the various churches that were going on in those churches. Now, uh, that means there were those seven, and we are on the sixth one right now in uh, verses 7 through 13 of chapter 3. That's the church at Philadelphia. And uh, uh, later will come uh, uh, in another episode the uh, letter to the church at Laodicea. And a lot of people are already familiar with that church and familiar with the some of the famous lines, you might say, from that letter. But we're going to hold off on that and, uh, and concentrate on Philadelphia here. Now, after uh, chapters 2 and 3, then we will get into that third um, uh, grid, that third part of the grid that Jesus laid out in verse 19 of chapter 1 when he said, uh, write about the things which will take place. And uh, so there is a special kind of thing that does take place. And John is given a vision of those things, but not until he is taken into heaven to see them from heaven's perspective. But we'll we'll, uh, cover all that in its own timing and in their own episodes uh, as we we, uh, make our way through the book of Revelation. Now, we have suggested to you, now I'm not going to try to uh, uh, lay it down as an absolute kind of thing, but uh, it is a suggestion that I think is is interesting to look at, that I believe that that these seven letters sort of outline uh, church history, at least in in very general terms, even though exact dates might not be able to uh, be established one way or another, but, but general trends in the church at large. And I think that 
that's why these particular um, churches were chosen to be the object of these letters, because the content of these letters seem to describe the very things that we see as we study church history. And that is that very first church was the church that had to deal with the apostles and the apostles' authority. And that's exactly what the church was. And then came Smyrna, the martyred church. And that uh, that took place, especially after about uh, A.D. 67 and forward uh, for uh, several uh, several generations. Uh, the church was the object of, of Rome's wrath. And and uh, and it was an official thing that they they persecuted the church. Now the church is always being been persecuted in all sorts of different places in different cultures. And the church was persecuted and the believers were persecuted even before uh, A.D. 67, even from the very beginning. The beginning, the first martyr was James the apostle, and uh, and then came Stephen a little bit later. But, uh, but what's interesting is that... Uh, uh, um, uh, it was during that particular age of the church or that that f- season of the church in which uh, persecution was characterized. And then came Pergamum, uh, the worldly church, and that, that's because uh, many people had been in, enveloped into the church boundaries or into the church ministry or into the church rosters, you might say, through Rome itself uh, in uh, about uh, 313 and coming shortly thereafter, uh, then uh, then it became a worldly church because there were people that were part of all the churches that had uh, no idea what it meant to be truly born again, as Jesus instructed Nicodemus to be. And then came uh, Thyatira, and we believe that that is a, a formal, structured church, uh, but uh, it is uh, uh, what some people would call the papal church uh, or the Roman church in, in officially, and uh, and that was about 590 uh, A.D. And then comes uh, Sardis, the Protestant or the Reformed churches, the movement that is, was begun. Uh, that's Sardis. But and even as strong as that movement was, and as strong as as its impact was upon the church life and upon church doctrines, um, even being held today uh, uh, as an impact on churches today because of that, uh, what's interesting is that uh, many of those churches became just dead doctrinal churches. They knew what they believed, but uh, they were not alive spiritually. Uh, they could check off the the, uh, the list of, of uh, sound doctrines, but uh, they still were dead in the sense of spiritual um, uh, life. And then comes Philadelphia, and that's where we find ourselves here. This is what you, some people call the revival church. This is the evangelical church in some regards, uh, even though that term is not used in this passage. but uh, and in fact, uh, this church has come to be known by the letter here as the Church of the Open Door, and uh, that's uh, the part of the content uh, content of this letter, the Church of the Open Door, and uh, so. 
uh, the stewardship of this church, which is a responsibility. That's what stewardship means. The stewardship of the church at Philadelphia uh, could be considered the opportunity that that open door gives to this congregation. And so uh, Philadelphia is an interesting city because the name, of course, uh, which we're most familiar with in the, uh, the American culture, that's the city of brotherly love. And it was founded by a fellow by the name of uh, Attalus uh, II, Philadelphus, in the second century BC, uh, to honor his brother uh, Imenes, or Eumenes, actually, Eumenes II. And uh, they, so he honored his brother by calling it Philadelphia. Uh, the city was, on a, was a border town. It had a Grecian cultural mission. It was uh, Hellenistic in that regard. Um, an outpost, not, uh, not a military outpost, but, but of culture and of language, of the Greek culture. It was... Uh it was considered to be the gateway to Asia, such as uh, like uh, uh, St. Louis, uh, Missouri, is the gateway to the West. Well, this uh, this particular town, this city, was known as the gateway into uh, the East, you might call that. And uh, there was the chief god of the city was the god of wine, or his name uh, in some places were was Bacchus, other places was Dionysius. Uh, but uh, uh, it would uh, be located in the modern uh, city uh, in Turkey uh, by the name of um, Alashehar uh, and um, or Shehir actually in a better pronunciation and uh, it in many regards there's there's a lot of parallels as far as the city is concerned with our own San Francisco because in the city of Philadelphia not only was it the city of love and brotherly love but it also was a city that was plagued with earthquakes and uh, and tremors were quite common in this city and the, and uh, people had to leave on occasions because of those earthquakes well, we've got into this introduction, and we're going to get into the exposition here uh, right after this musical interlude. So take a little break, and we'll join you back on the other side. In this very first part of uh, this letter, the introduction, the greeting, you might call it, uh, uh, Jesus again describes himself in, in specific terms. Now, if you added up all of these specific terms that Jesus uses in all of these seven letters, you get a full rounded dimension of who he is, of his identity, of his, his character. But there are certain aspects of his character. In fact, you find many of those aspects uh, alluded to or referred to 
in the first chapter, and now they are referred to again as each of those specific characteristics might apply to to these various churches. And in this case, he calls himself he who is holy and true and has the key of David. Evidently, this this, uh, church uh, may have been an energetic church uh, in uh, many regards, but they an enthusiastic church perhaps, uh, but uh, they needed to know that they had been surrounded by the person who is known as true and uh, holy. Uh, and and that was that would be important to them uh, because uh, Jesus has a purpose and he's committed to that purpose. That's what makes him holy is his dedication to the purpose, the purpose of God. That's what made the furniture holy in the Old Testament. It wasn't the fact that the furniture, uh, well, it was a special design and a special kind of uh, orchestration, but it was not to be used in ordinary uh, purposes or ordinary settings. It was to be used in a specific setting to accomplish specific things. And Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, uh, now has a purpose that he is committed to. And and of course, that means uh, eliminating uh, uh, all sorts of things that we would associate as being unholy. And uh, that's where our minds go, is we we tend to think about the things that are not holy, and he's not not any of those, but uh, he is holy and he is true. In him, is the truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And that means something because he means something. He is the truth. He's not the illusion. He's not the uh, the, uh, the, the, the the myth. He is the truth. And he has the truth as well as the key of David. And here's one of those little tributaries. Why does Jesus, uh, talking to what in essence would have been uh, uh, likely a uh, a Gentile church. Uh, perhaps there were Jewish believers there in that uh, congregation in Philadelphia, but uh, but primarily he's addressing uh, Jesus himself is addressing this uh, Gentile church, um, and yet he he uses this title that comes from an origin that is very very Jewish and connected to the Jewish covenant and the Jewish Messiah, which he is. That's what the Greek word Christ translates is is the Hebrew word Messiah, and. Um, and that's what he refers to when he says, um, and it comes actually from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, and it says, Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. That actually has a context, and it's not directly related to Jesus, but it is where Eliakim is a replacement for a a priest and a ruler um, by the name of Shebna in Isaiah chapter 22, verses 15 through 25 is the entire story there, or at least the major part of that story. And uh, in verse 22 is this idea, uh, the key of the house of David. Well, Jesus owns that key. He is not only holy and true, but 
He has the key of David. That means he rules from the house of David. And one day he will return to rule in the house of David in the the new Jerusalem. And he will reign as the king of kings and lord of lords. He is currently in heaven. and, And yet here in this setting, he is writing to a Gentile church. And he wants them to be reminded that his Jewish character, is still just as strong. He hasn't eliminated himself from the prophecies about his Jewish nature and his Jewish purpose with the key of David in his hand. And, uh, uh, or maybe he's got it in a pouch someplace, but he, he, he says he has the key of David. That means he has the authority and the position and the role to inherit David's throne and carry out the role and the rule of David himself over the nation of Israel. But notice that this authority includes the open and shut authority, and that has to do with opportunity. And he goes on to say, and he makes the application right away, quite quickly here in verse 8, he says, I know your deeds. Isn't that interesting to know that Jesus knows your works? Jesus pays attention to what you do, not only as individuals, but as a congregation, as a local church, he sees your deeds. That's a comfort. Now, it shouldn't be seen as a threat because it's not a threat here. It is, it is a comfort to know that he notices you. He notices what you do. He noticed those things you do that perhaps other Christians don't even notice. Perhaps the church never, have, never has given you any recognitions for, for the little things that you do for Christ. And that's okay because Jesus sees them. He knows them. And he says, so I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut. So here's the application. What is it? This opportunity. The opportunity is continuing to preach the gospel in that town and to have an audience in that town. That's the opportunity that Jesus has opened for them. By the way, since we're on the uh, on the subject of keys, uh, because uh, people uh, like to uh, go back to the fact that uh, uh, Jesus gave keys to uh, uh, to Peter, and yet uh, uh, it says in uh, Revelation chapter one verse eighteen, he says, "And the living one, and and I was dead, and behold, I was I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades." So those are some other keys. Jesus still has a hold of those keys. He determines who gets in and who doesn't, uh, not because of of anybody earning it, but because of what he has done to purchase this. Them and uh, to purchase them with his own blood. By the way, that blood was Jewish blood. It was a Jewish body he held on earth, and he is known by a Jewish name then, and he's known by a Jewish name now. It is Yeshua HaMashiach. That's his name. And so uh, he has a variety of keys that he never relinquished to Peter at all. He has the keys of death and Hades. And uh, the keys of the kingdom of heaven uh, is related, but that's Peter's opportunities to preach the gospel to new audience groups that he had not preached to. And uh, that is the exposure of the gospel and giving 
people groups uh, uh, an opportunity to respond to the gospel. And that was Acts chapter 2. He opened up the door to the Jews. That doesn't automatically make all the Jewish people there that day saved, but it it means that uh, Peter had that role. He had that role of opening the door so that the Jewish people could hear the gospel in their own languages. And uh, then he also went in Acts chapter 8 to preach to the Samaritans, to have them receive and respond to the gospel of the Jewish Messiah in their culture. Uh, As an act of an apostle, he gave them that opportunity. That's the uh, what uh, what Peter had. Also, he opened the door to the Gentiles when he went to Cornelius's house in Acts chapter ten, and there the Gentiles were given the opportunity to directly hear the the Jewish gospel of their Messiah dying as the as the payment for their sin. He is our atonement, and he is our complete uh, forgiveness of our sins because he lived and died uh, as our replacement, as our substitute, and his death was adequate to save us and to, and to put us in the right position. And he, he goes on to say, he says, uh, you have an open door which no one can shut because you have a, a little power. They don't have a whole lot of strength, but it doesn't take a lot of strength. It just takes some. And, and so he, he acknowledges that and have kept my word. They were obedient. They knew God's words. And it says, uh, and have not denied my name. He, They have not walked away from the reputation of Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord, the 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 ruler who has the key of David. They've not walked away from him, even though he says, behold, I will cause uh, those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are the Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your uh, feet and make them know that I have loved you. And that's a, a process that Jesus puts in place here that he is desiring, according to to not only the opportunity he's given to Gentiles, but also that there is now a new role that Gentile believers in the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish Savior, um, that, uh, that he has in such a way caused them, uh, uh, caused them jealousy. And that comes up uh, in uh, uh, various places in the New Testament. But uh, that's part of Jesus's own uh, strategy. You might say that's his own um, uh, connection, even to the covenant of, with the nation of Israel. And that is the Gentiles have been called and given opportunity to believe in him. And uh, it says, uh, uh, Paul says this in Romans chapter 11, verse 26. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 19. It says, uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 19, but I say, surely Israel did not know, didn't, uh, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. That is prediction of the role that these churches will have. And Philadelphia is fulfilling that role. They will see fruit even in the Jewish synagogue that had a uh, very little idea of what they were rejecting when they were rejecting Christ. And yet some of them, will come to Christ because of their testimony. He says, uh, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who are on the earth. That means this church has been given a certain guarantee that they will not see the 
what we call the tribulation period. They will not experience the great tribulation that's going to fall upon the nations of Israel, or that that is the nations of the Gentiles and the nation of Israel. I am coming quickly, he says. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. There is crown that will be given for those who love Jesus and those who look forward to his return. And he says, I don't want you to lose out on that. He says, uh, uh, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. There will be uh, an, an association that every believer will have with the intimate workings of the temple in heaven. Uh, and not only that, he says, I will write uh, on him the name of my God. We will have a name uh, on us, and it will be God's name, and it will be the, the, the name of the city of God. We will have that identity. We will have the identity of God and the identity of the new Jerusalem, which ascends down out of heaven from my God. And he says, look, and my new name, that is is going to be a name inscribed upon us that we will cherish for the rest of eternity. The name of God, the name of, of, uh, of Jerusalem, and the name of Yeshua HaMashiach that will be our name, our identity, because as a group, we own him and he owns us. We are his. And so we have his name. Verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that means this is an individual appeal, an individual invitation. You need to hear this as a person, as an individual. You need to hear what Jesus is saying, not only to the church at uh, Philadelphia, but to all the seven churches and to all the church throughout the ages. When Jesus speaks, then we should be paying attention and we should give special note of what he is saying because it applies not only to us as individuals, it applies to our congregations because it is his word and he is the one who is holy. He is the one who is true. And he is the one with the key of David. Thank you, Father, for these words of encouragement, for these words of power, for these words of opportunity, for the responsibilities you have given us as individuals and as congregations to carry out the opportunities you've given to us as our responsibilities on this earth as long as you are here, as long as you keep us here. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you enjoyed our presentation today. This is Glendale Tony. Join us again for the next episode of Feeding the Flock.